You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and this time of the year can be hard for an awful lot of people, and we're hearing lots, particularly not just here in Ottawa, but around the world, but also in Dublin, that there's a lot of um, issues around homelessness and um, addiction and a variety of other things. And Desi J.M. is an author, actor, performing poet. Uh, he lives and works in Dublin. And his writings reflect themes and personal preoccupations with issues that relate to alcoholism and addiction, homelessness, church and state, and the state of the world in general. And uh, Desi has a website, desijm.com, and I have Desi J here on the line. And we're going to have a bit of a chat. Desi, thanks a million for taking the time to have a chat. Uh, thanks, Austin. Yes. So as I said, this time of year particularly, you know, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a hard time. And when I look at some of what you have, uh, you have a, a title out there, The Day the Poppy Met the Shamrock, and I'm aware that in Ireland this year there was a certain degree of controversy about that topic. Uh, you have another book called Legacies, The Resurrection of Peter and Would You Believe, which I understand is poetry. Um, let's talk about The Day the Poppy Met the Shamrock. Do you want to give yeah, me a, well, tell, tell yeah, me a bit about uh, it. Well, me pet name for is the poppy. Uh, call it the poppy. Um, yes, I, I grew up in a Republican, hardline Republican uh, family, you know. And uh, my grandfather was in the IRA. My father was in the IRA. Uh, there was um, same age as my maternal grandfather was the same age as my paternal of my father. And uh, make a long story short. And I grew up in a very Republican family where, you know, uh, the 1914, the 1918 war wasn't really mentioned. And, uh, you know, my great-grandfather, Christopher, Private Christopher Carroll, uh, died of his injuries in the Mata Hospital after being shot by a Turkish spy. Um, and I never really, you know, uh, he was never really recognized growing up and... Being uh, in, in, into addiction, being a, uh, what you call it, uh, an active alcoholic and uh, compulsive gambler, you know, and one of the main um, issues surrounding addiction and the main offender is resentment and bitterness, you know, and addiction, recovery from addiction is progressive, you know, and it came to the stage where, you know, I had to sort of understood uh, had to go and understand my my great grandfather's um, uh, you know in World War in World War One surrounding like uh, um, you know his death and you know and look into what happened in the in the First World War um, and I ended up in the homeless unit for ex servicemen and I got the opportunity to go to Flanders for the 19th anniversary of Amnesty Day. Uh, yes, and I, even though I was in, in Flanders, where my grandfather, great-grandfather, he, he died of his injuries, uh, as I said, in the Mata Hospital, uh, in, in, he was based in Gallipoli, at a, a, you know, uh, in the First World War. But I began to see man's inhumanity to man. And... A little more, a little more about uh, World War One. That many Irish men went and fought, believing that, you know, the Redmond's men that would be united Ireland, in in that sense, you know, by joining up and fighting for the crown. And when I, when I got there to Flanders, I began to see, uh, you know, uh, 
the awful war that it was, and I learned more about my great grandfather, uh, and I learned to understand, you know, uh, uh, this bitterness that that being brought up in a hardline Republican family said was released from my soul, and I got a lot of peace from it. Uh, and I, I, resentment is no uh, has no place in my heart because. It, it, it affects me in every way. It affects me in addiction. Um, it affects me with depression. Uh, it's inward anger, really, uh, basically, was um, my um, uh, depression. That's what it really was, was inward anger. And there's a lot of healing from that. Uh, so, so Daniel, let, 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 let's take a step back. Like, what age were you at this time? And... Um, that when you felt that you needed to dig into the family history in order to understand mm. your own challenges, what age would you have been then? Well, I began to look at it a long time before that, uh, about 20 years ago. This is, you know, I began to look at, uh, you know, rejection. My, my mother uh, rejected me at birth. She became pregnant in 1954 in the marrying year outside of marriage. You know, yeah. um, my, my mother was re rejected me at birth, make a long story short. And uh, but my father and mother basically, uh, you know, as they call the term, shotgun wedding. Uh, so I began to look at that and look at rejection, looking at my schooling. You know, and it, I, I believe I grew up in a very legalistic religion, a moralistic religion. We taught morals, but we weren't taught... Um, you know, have fallen, have, you know, we wouldn't have the other side of our, 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 our spirituality. It's basically a legalistic religion I was brought up in. Um, so I started looking at them things about 20 years ago and uh, I began to see these things. Um, and, and, and Desi, you know, when, there was a lot of... Right. Hmm? So when, when you were initially uh, recognised or when it was recognised initially that you had a problem... Uh, and this is just for your gambling and um, initially. You were rather young at that mm. stage. Yes, I stopped drinking when I was 30 years of age, 1984. I'll always remember the 1st of April, 1984. Right. You know, but then I see it. When, when you were 17, you were treated for gambling. Yes, indeed. Compulsive gambling, yes, yeah. at 17. Uh, I sort of surrendered really one sense of the gambling because I knew I couldn't win. I knew I was beaten. But alcohol became the addiction of my choice, and I knew if I gambled, I would lose my drinking money. Right, you know? right, right. So yeah, then, yeah. and then as you dug deep, so as you were digging deeper, and you kind of, because it's not unusual in a lot of Irish homes where mm. there's a lot of things that aren't talked about. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, particularly when it comes to, <laughs> be it the First World War, the Civil War, even the Second World War, there's an awful lot mm. that was never talked about. So yes, when you yes. started, when you started to ask questions, that in itself must have and could have caused a certain amount of trauma around your family. Yes, when I, when I start seeing my poor mother, God bless her, you know, when I start seeing my poor mother, you know. My grandfather, as I said, was in the IRA, and he's involved in the Civil War on the side of Collins, and my father's on the side of De Valera. And when I look at my poor unfortunate mother, she was the eldest girl of a large family. And my grandfather, you know, 
It's ironic that he went and joined the British Army to fight Hitler, and he was in the evacuation of Dunkirk, which was a miracle. And my grandfather came back from the war. He was class as shell shock in them days, but he was mad. He went crazy. And my grandmother couldn't handle this because she lost her father in the First World War, my great-grandfather. And my grandmother drew into herself and became a chain-smoking, wood-buying, uh, you know, retired, as you call them, them days, housewives. You know, and my mother was left to look after the whole family. You know, and my grandfather was very violent. He just basically was man. He was just mentally, you know, it took him a long time to recover from that uh, term, if you like to call it, shell shock. Right. And my mother was that. And she had to wash, she had to scrub, and she had, you know. Yeah, and at that time, does he, like, you know, I see you grew up in Kulak, so, you know, it wasn't as if either that uh, there would have been an awful lot of opportunity for your dad when he would have come back uh, to to kind of, society wasn't uh, knocking on the door of people to saying, how can we help? Well, look, my grandfather, I'm just talking about my grandfather, well, my father, like, my father was basically a bus driver. All right, okay. It was a good job in them days. You know, right, my right. father was a bus driver. You know, um, so, but your, and, gran- your you grandfather know, then would have been, like, he'd have been left literally hanging around because there was no, nothing there for people. My grandfather? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, my grandfather in, 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 in the early 40s went to England okay. to provide for his family. Right. He was a carpenter, and he couldn't get work here. My grandfather, he went to England, and he's called up. And that's what he done. He, he was already a trained soldier, you know, with the IRA. And uh, he already he went up and joined, and joined the British Army, and he was in the, as I mentioned, he was in the uh, evacuation of Dunkirk. But there was nothing for him, you know. And he had to provide for his family. And the only way he provided for family at that time was go to England. So then, as you were growing up, as a teenager, um, mm. I guess when you looked out uh, around about you, the landscape was just kind of confusion in every direction. I had not a clue who I was. Right. You know, now, I tried to be with all the lads, you know. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I found it hard to, ex- the rejection was hard to accept. You didn't, you didn't, I didn't understand, I, <laughs> not everybody's going to like you, you know. Uh, not everybody's going to like you, and... Uh, I was confused, and I didn't know at the time. You know now, but I didn't know at the time I was on the I, I was on the autistic spectrum. Was just, I, uh, I I technically they call me or uh, what you call it? Affectionately they call people like myself and that and that's be a person with Asperger's syndrome. And uh, I hadn't got a clue about you know what was going really on in my life. Um, but it was something inside me all the time. Uh, I brought up to be a tradesperson, and I couldn't be a tradesman. I just couldn't do the job. And I thought I let the family down. I thought it was not good for nothing. Uh, I think there was a lot of pressure on um, people of my uh, generation to have a trade, to have a good job or something like that, you know, or a good education. Um, and the education at that time, you know, was just coming at the time when every child is entitled to an education. But I was more or less being a, tra- a tradesperson from a working class family. And then, as you say, at that time, because Ireland was changing, because if you you were born in the late 50s, you would have been uh, coming in, in on stream in the early 70s, the late 60s, early yeah. 70s. And at yeah, that Ireland, t- yeah. yeah, Ireland was kind of, there was a lot of hope around Ireland at that time. 
No. What, what, can you repeat that often? There was a lot of hope around our like in a way oh. yeah like the, the things were looking up kind of Ireland had come out of the war Ireland had um, mm. as far as I remember like Sean Lamass had come through and there was a degree yeah. of optimism in Ireland in the early 70s yeah when I remember like uh, the industrial uh, aspect of Ireland began to take uh, place I began to you know and um, uh, the construction industry started moving pretty much so in the late 60s i think i remember in 1969 the shopping center start going up um uh and you know there was a lot of there was a lot of optimism there's a lot of work not many people are going across the water as you used to say and um you know uh you know and uh education begin to uh every as i said mentioned uh children were entitled to an education Right. So then, when when did you get the opportunity to go to Belgium? Well, as I said, you know, in 2008, uh, okay. uh, my marriage broke up. Right. Um, and I was at home, and just I had to leave the family home, because my wife wasn't going to believe it, being a woman, walking the streets, and I had to find my way. I was, as I call it nowadays, as a sofa, sofa. You know, and um, I was going from house to house, and I was living in conditions that were deemed, uh, you know, they would be deemed human, uh, wouldn't be deemed for human habitation. And from there, I happened to get an ex-servicemen's homeless unit in a um, hostel in uh, North King Street, Dublin. And, you know, from there, you know, I got the opportunity to go to Belgium. Right. While I was in the homeless unit. Yeah, and then in Belgium, like at that, when you came uh, and saw Belgium itself, and you saw Flanders, you saw uh, the the reality in a way. Uh, that that yeah. that opened your eyes to a lot of things. It did open my eyes. Yeah, you could sense it, and I don't know, you know, it was just amazing. Because on the coach we were going around on the coach, you had the videos of a lot of stuff that you wouldn't show on television, really. You know, it was terrible. Terrible, you know, and what that men had to go through, because at that time I could imagine, you know, you didn't see really like the first type of film I I remember watching, uh, Soldier Blue. In, in I don't really like use the term blood and guts, but that's why I can uh, explain Soldier Blue was the first film I seen like that. But you know, in them days, you know, you didn't see cowboy films or silent movies and all that. And I don't think them, the young men in Ireland didn't realise what war was like. They hadn't got a clue what war was like. They just joined up to go. Some of them gave, gave, the, gave, you know, gave a wrong age. Some of them were 15 years of age. They hadn't got a clue what war was like. It's like, you know, like Baba, Dada, like cowboys and Indians or something like that. Right, right, right. But we didn't know what it was like. Right. You know. So when and, when, uh, when you experienced this then, um, you would would you say that was a turning point in your life? It was a turning point in my life. Yeah, my my, my roots. It was a turning point. I understood. I understood my grandmother. You know, I understood my mother. You know, and uh, it was a healing for me. A healing for me. I think going through life there's always healings. I think I think we never unravel totally. You know. Uh, you know, from what, you know, the, from trauma, but, you know, it's, my life is far better and more manageable, you know, uh, 
It's always things to work at, but it was a, it was a turning point in my life. It certainly was, and uh, you know, I hope it can give hope to other people. And it's not just addiction, you know, alcoholism or drugs or gambling. You know, a lot of people have depression today, and I think it can be underlying issues, underlying hurts. You know that, and I think uh, in one sense, you know, support groups are very good uh, in helping people and professionals in that area. I think we've got more knowledge of these things today than we had many, many years ago, you know, and, you know, there was no really uh, support. Right. So then, Desi, over the last few years particularly, uh, there was a a lot of commemorations in Ireland uh, that uh, recognised the Irish contribution to the First World War. And Mm. I I know there was quite a bit of controversy even recently in the last number of months uh, because of the uh, sculpture that was placed in uh, Stephen Stevens Green, mm. and uh, I, I was conscious also there was a discussion uh, going on uh, about the poppy and the use of mm. the poppy as a symbol in Ireland. Given that you mm. wrote this book in 2014, so we're looking mm. at uh, about four odd years ago, before a lot of these current events occurred. Uh, do you think that Ireland has uh, come forward in its thinking, or the people of Ireland have come forward in their thinking, in the understanding and the recognition and the universality of the Irish contribution to the First World War and the circumstances that caused many people to sign up? Well... You know, I think there's more uh, awareness. And, like, for me, if I had to destroy a statue, I would have no peace about myself. You know, I wouldn't have peace. Mm-hmm. I'd have bitterness. I'd have a bitter heart, mm-hmm. you know. I understand. I think there is a more of awareness. And the fact the statue had been desecrated, I would like the word, uh, you know, the focus may be on that. But didn't, I think the focus should be, uh, I think it's that we have moved on from... A, from uh, you know, um, that bitter spirit mm-hmm. that we had as a nation. You know, going up like, was the British were the problem? The British was the problem? The British destroyed this country and all that. I think we've, we've moved away from that quite a lot. Right. Quite a lot. Right. We've moved away from that. Um, but if, you know, if I, I, I can't ha- have to forward a bitterness in my hand. Yes, I can say a famine happened. I say the famine was wrong. Uh, it wasn't right. But like it's time to move on. Yes. You know, we, yeah. you, you know, when you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that you let them off the hook. It means you let yourself off the hook. Right. You let yourself, you give yourself peace. If I if I'd been harmed, you know, growing up by the institution, by the state, by the church, you know, I, I, I said to somebody uh, uh, not so long ago, you know, I forgive these people, and he said, you let them men and dress us off the hook. No, let me set off the hook. Mm-hmm. So you can't, once I have bitter a bitter spirit. I can't function in life. I can't, you know, you know what, what, uh, what, being part of the community, being part of the society, if I have a bitter spirit, you know, and that's what I'm delivering into the community. That's what I'm delivering into society as a bitter spirit. It's not that they were. It doesn't take away the fact that they were wrong. It doesn't take that away, and you know, it doesn't take away the fact away that the British were wrong in, in relation to the famine and other, um, you know, over the 700 period that. If you like to use the term the, the occupancy of Ireland, you know it's moving on and forgiveness 
and let them go. Right. You know? Now, going back to the the uh, uh, sculpture that was in mm. Stephen's Green, did you get? To, mm. Did you take time, or were you able to go down and did you have a look at it? I just didn't go down. I did, you know, I didn't go. Uh, right. The answer was awesome, but when I read about it, I was a little bit somewhat upset. You know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about even the, it being the paint being thrown on it. I'm just talking about it, mm. it as a commemorative statue because mm. you know it. Mm. It was the Universal Soldier, and uh, mm. Mm. Uh, you know, even over mm. here, uh, certainly it was recognised as a powerful piece of art that was commemorative mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm. So while, yes, some one individual went and uh, created mm. a, a, a scene, I think the, picture, mm. the the story that came out of Ireland was not the one. The story that came out of Ireland was the many who honoured through that. Mm. So I don't think it was a negative in that sense at all. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but going back again then to, the, as the, I, I was also conscious there was some discussion about the poppy in and around the same time. Um, could you mm. see, and, and I was hearing the discussion, could you see where Ireland could move on um, within a reasonable amount of time where the poppy ceases to have um, the kind of tribal negativity about it that in many ways it has. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Poppy, you know, to me, um, it doesn't, uh, I, 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 but people have their views and, you know, uh, I think, I think Ireland has moved on. Right. Big time. I think it's been moved on big time from that, uh, you know, uh, like I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you uh, yeah. It's just uh, you see, you have. I live, I live, I live in a world here where the poppy is a natural part of November. Mm. And I yeah. also, I also live in a world where there's a recognition and a knowledge that the Irish and the Canadian soldiers or Irish soldiers served mm. alongside Canadian soldiers mm. in yeah. in in the war. But, yeah. And well, I, 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 they don't, I don't think really what you understand, uh, you know, and I think the, uh, people are beginning to understand, you know, the reason why the Irish soldiers joined up, the reason behind it. John Redman sort of more or less promised a uh, home rule. Mm-hmm. And that was part of it, you know. And, uh, um, the other um, real, but the other reality... But, Desi was there was an awful lot of people and they had no money to put food on the table and there was nowhere to get a job. That's another way of looking at it as well, uh, Austin. You know, as I mentioned, they didn't understand what war was. You thought it was cowboys and Indians, bang yeah. bang, are dead. Right, but, you know, but like you can't. I can imagine at that time. I can imagine at that time, as I mentioned already, the movies. There was just silent movies. You yeah. wouldn't see anything really that was going on. But even even if they had an understanding of what it was, like you know, if you and I know that if it comes to a stage and you're trying to put food on the table and you have a wife and children, mm. um, yeah. you know, and there's there's no jobs, and there's no opportunity for a job, and there's money being said you can get a regular salary or a regular wage if you sign along the dotted line, and yeah, there's risks associated with it. There's people and they're driven in their circumstances drives them to say mm. that's that's mm. my only option. Mm, yeah, 
I can understand that. It was like my fa- grandfather signing up in World War Two, And at that time, you know, uh, there was uh, starvation. There was, uh, you know, people in the tenements and tw- even as people 20, 20 in the one room, even yeah. families, large yeah. families. There again, like, you know, the men in 1916, they... That's their reason why they don't open for because of the the the, the, the uh, conditions that people were living in. That was one of the reasons why they, you know, signed the proclamation and went out and, you know, took up arms on Easter Easter Sunday, right? Or Easter Monday, yeah, yeah, yeah. over the Easter weekend, so, right? So yeah. moving, let's move on a piece then, does he? Like, because you, you have two other pieces that are poetry. Mm. Um, and you have a, a, I suppose it would be a work of fiction in, in between and there. But w- mm. they, um, but what draws you to poetry, or where does that come? Like, um, the, the urge to write and the inspiration to write, um, where did that come from? Well, you know, uh, I had it from a very young age, and as I said, my parents, and particularly my father, Want me to be a tradesman, you know, and you be never go, you never any be any good without a trade. Right. You know, you, you have to have a trade to be successful. So I, I wrote, you know, I used to write and things like that. And strange to say, my mother said to me, "You'll write a book one day, son." Right. I was only sixteen years of age or fifteen years of age, and I used to write stuff. And then, you know, uh, humour was something that got through me li- through life. Um, I was in the army. Uh, it was my humour that got through, got helped me get through it. And I remember uh, this, this actor's name. I can't think of his name. Pierce Brosnan. Right. Um, he was often fairly young. Yeah. And he was asked, "How did you survive such a trauma?" And he, he, he just said one one word reply was comedy. Right. And that's how I survived myself through comedy. I, I didn't know I was on the artistic spectrum, and I was subject to bullying and things like that. And in the army, you know, uh, you know, uh, bullying was a common place, and, and a lot of us directed at myself. But across the line, in the end, and a lot, of, a lot of the bullies didn't make it, and those who across the line with became my friends and comrades. And humour in the camp was always. Uh, um, was kept us going, and you know, soldiers getting wet, getting you know, drowned in the rain, mucked up in the eyeball, freezing cold, yet while coming back in the truck to base, we're singing and we're laughing and we're joking. And the, the remember the, the 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 company sergeant says, "Now I see we have men," you know. Right. And, and it was humour, and, and as, a, as a kingpin in that area. So, yeah. so where were you? Where were you stationed at this time, or where was this happening? Well, I was stationed in the 5th Battalion in Collins Barracks. Okay. And uh, we'd done our, done our training down in the Glen of the Mall and in Gormanstown Camp and the Furring Range as well. I was up in the border for about six months, you know, uh, sleeping in tents and canvas beds while we guarded the camp and then we were in the engineers, we were doing construction while the other lads went out and uh, patrolled the border. We, we, kept, uh, we, we kept guarding the camp. Um, in freezing cold conditions, we were sleeping in tents on canvas beds, you know. But was, the fun was always there, you know. Right. That's what kept us going. Lab, they say lab was the shortest distance between two people. Um, and Desi, were, were, you, were, you, hmm? were you drinking at that time? I was, yes, yes. The strange to say, uh, Austin, you know, uh, I was a type of a drinker that I'd end up in the sewer. 
for the Royal and then coming about about six months and started smelling like a rose again. They're going to be back on the sewer. Uh, it was a reconcording problem in many ways, you know. Uh, but I was thinking at that time. And well, you did know. you get into trouble in, at, like in, uh, in the army was in anywhere? When, um, no, no, no. Strange to say, no. You know, strange to say, no. I didn't get into any trouble in the army with us. Uh, um, I didn't know. Like even the more alcoholic then in them days, you wouldn't. You know, you thought it was somebody, you know, and, uh, sitting on a park bench with a, you know, an old raincoat, a piece of twine wrapped around them, and a bottle of wine in a in a paper bag. You know, right, right. and we didn't understand what alcoholism was at that time. So then, when you left the army, then um, you were still actively drinking. Yes, yes. And I was never really comfortable with myself, uh, Austin. Right. You know, so really uh, and myself. when you came out of the army, then what to do with yourself? I went to England. I went to Bolton and Manchester. Right. Bolton, just outside Manchester. And then I went from there down to Birmingham. Then I came back to Dublin. And I went back to London in a two-year period. It was always that geographic escape. It was never... Uh, it wasn't really... I was uneasy with myself, you know. I never couldn't sit... With myself, and were you able to hold? You were, were you able to hold down jobs at that time? I did. Yeah, strange to say, I did. I worked hard on the building sites there in England, Birmingham. It was hard work, really hard work. Uh, you know, it was very hard work in construction there. Ground workers, they call them now, and labourers, we call them them days. Right. It was very, very hard work, but I was able to hold down the job. So, what happened then that caused a trigger for the lights to come on? And you to say, I need, I have a problem and I need to do something about it. Well, it's strange to say, I was married to a lovely woman, you know, in 1981. Got married. Uh, and it was causing a lot of problem in the marriage. And I hated myself. I, you know, when you sober up the following morning and I told what you're doing. And I just hated myself, my behavior. And uh, after about two years, I think, in the marriage, uh, my wife at the time uh, sought help, and she sought help, and I sought help. And uh, I went to uh, a treatment centre, and uh, I had an adverse reaction in the treatment centre. And they said, there might be something wrong with you, something else wrong with you. And they put me on the, uh, on the psychiatrist, and I got my own confused, to be honest with you. And, uh, and I won't, yeah. But at that time, I did, you know... Asperger's wasn't really understood either, or autism wasn't really understood. Um, but it came to the stage that I tried to end my life on many occasions. My God, love my dear uh, uh, ex-wife. Um, I took an overdose on, a, on one occasion. There's an overdose, if you like to say, that went wrong. And, uh, you know, uh, I was removed from the house and, and, and I was taken by the police to uh, St. Brendan's. Uh, so I got to the hospital in uh, Grange Garman. And that was uh, that was the end of my marriage. And I was transferred from Grange Garman to St. Peter's Portran. And in the same ward was, in the same unit, was my mother. God bless her. She had a breakdown for what was happening to me. She took personally on board and blamed herself that what has happened to me. And both of us in the same unit together. It was a travesty and it was a tragedy. Uh, and I see my mother being wheeled up for shock treatment and ECT. Um, and I made a few more, I was released, I was discharged, made a few more suicide attempts. I should never have been found. I was just a 
just, I don't know, it's never been found. I think it was, I was crying out inside, inside of this God that I didn't understand, and I didn't know who he was. And uh, I obviously, there was obviously intervention, and in 19, 1st of April 1984, I arrived in Coomber Treatment Centre, and the hand of uh, a lady called, a nun called Sister Concilio, Fitzgerald, took me by the hand, and, you know, gave me some sort of hope. I was there for a year and a half, and from the 1st of April 1984 up till now, I haven't taken a drink. That's 34 years ago, I think, is it? 25. Thereabouts, yeah. Tisn't it? Yeah. Now, at 30, mm. and, so in 1984, you, <laughs> sorry, you were just in your 30s, you say, at that stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you were, in many ways, you were, you were a young man who had lived a long life at that stage. Seemed a long life, yes. <laughs> yeah, <not laughs> no, because based on on you know the experiences that you'd had, you'd, you'd yeah. <laughs> you were a young man that had had long life <laughs> under his belt at thirty years of age. Mm. <laughs> mm. So, um, mm. after coming out of Coonwera and uh, trying to get yourself started out again, um, mm. what did mm. you do with yourself then? Well. Um, as I said, like, I'm still getting reactions from the alcohol after about two years. Sister Concilia got me to a le- in Coomber, I got to a level where life was more manageable. But I had a breakdown after two years. I'm still getting reactions from the alcohol. I started hearing voices and things like that. They diagnosed me with schizophrenia at that time and I put on injections and things like that. I was hardly able to function really physically. I sort of tired, but I tried to go out more than my best. You know, working in hotels and, uh, um, you know, uh, work for the council and corporation, would you believe? I got to, you know, working in the parks uh, as a park keeper and I found it hard dealing with the young people in the park and things like that. And, uh, you know, I eventually went to England. I met my second wife, Sonia. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was taken out the injection. Uh, it, was, it was diagnosed as, as alcoholic-related psychosis. Now, psychosis that was uh, basically um, uh, connected to alcoholism, chronic alcoholism. Um, and uh, I, had a good, I, I enjoyed my time in England in many ways. I met a lot of friends, lovely people. I was never insulted. I was only insulted once because of my nationality. And that was a drunken English man. All the, most things, most of my friends were English, my work, my my colleagues, work colleagues, uh, and they respect. They, I, 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 they obviously gave me the height of respect. I said, you know, and you know, I, I, as I said, I had a good time, and I was able to cope with life a lot better, and function a lot better, right. and being a productive uh, citizen. Right. I'm not saying people with depression, I don't want, you know, are not are lazy or anything like that. It was just basically, uh, it was a pro- as I said, it was a process. Um, you know, recovery is a process. It's not an immediate, uh, hasn't got an immediate effect. It's a process. And uh, Right. You know, so, the, so then 2014 would have been the day the poppy met the shamrock. That, that's the first year. No, first 2000, 2008. It was the 19, uh, 19th anniversary of Armistice Day. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Because I'm just seeing here was first published on Create Space, so but you actually had it out in prior to that. But that was your that yes, oh yeah yes, okay. Yes. So that was your first work. 
Um, in that was his, his first one. But yeah. And yeah. then after so that, then the poetry. Then you went into poetry. Yeah. And what drew you to poetry? As I mentioned, as a young fella, you know, I used to be writing things, but, you know, but the fact is that as a, you know, my father said, you need a trade. And I never, I sort of sabotaged really in one sense, you know, and uh, in relation to my creativity, or could I say was sabotaged. I thought up to be on the logical aspect of life and I, and, I, and I was a creative person all along, you know, and then I tried to be probably creative and logic at the same time, which would be uh, indeed an ingenious uh, working from both sides of your brain, uh, Michelangelo maybe in, in that classification. So uh, as I said, humour was always my uh, my um, my survival mechanism, if you like to call it. So when I put pen to paper, you know, and you know, this all this humour started to come up, and my creativity started to uh, evolve, and uh, I began to write stories where it was humour. And at the same time, there's a story behind it, and it's based on wordplay. And, you know, so I said, you know, uh, I, I think singing, uh, entertaining, um, performing poetry uh, is good for my mental health. Uh, because I, I am a recovering alcoholic, I also have underlying issues. Okay. And, you know, it. Uh, like I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and with mental health issues, I think if I sat on my talents, I would get, I would withdraw into myself. I do would would degenerate. I think that's the word. And the fact is that when I engage my artwork, you know, uh, I'm very seldom depressed. Very seldom, and you know. I can write about my experiences through my artwork, uh, and, and particularly my poems. Right, because I recall, and I'm, I'm looking to see if I can find it here at the moment, I can't, but I remember I was on, uh, going to go across the O'Connell Bridge one day, and um, Pat Inglesby mm. Was on, yes. the, was on the bridge, it was Pat, uh, the name wasn't yeah. coming to me. And Pat was selling CDs of his poetry, and I yeah. I picked one of them up. Mm. Um, and um, I, I'm sure you know Pat, do you? And you've, uh, you've I know him, yes, Pat, I used to have a chat with him quite a lot. And like yeah. when I looked at his poetry, a lot of Pat's poetry is quite um, dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would would you say that the poetry has allowed you to turn on the lights? Of course it has. I can write about the darkness, and I can also write about the light. Right. You know, uh, if, if, uh, I have to get balance, uh, and by getting balance, if I'm writing about the dark all the time, I'd just be in the dark. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, life has, life has its moments. You know, life is not all fun. Life is not all fun. You know, life has its moments. Well, as mentioned earlier, I think I, think I mentioned earlier that Lapa is the shortest distance between yeah. two people. Right. So then, Desi, um, so so with your publications out there now, do you get called on to do any readings or to do any motivational speaking, or how are you getting the word out there? Well, uh, um, 
awesome. I haven't really pushed it as such, but I have. I'm starting now in February in the local GA club, Parnells. I'm doing a read that day, and I hope to do regular readings myself and invite invite people right. and uh, put posters up around uh, to work on it to build up to from page to stage. Yeah, and uh, that's my intentions. Right. Uh, I think. It's not that I, I feel a victim in life or anything like that. I, I don't go down that road feeling a victim. But I think when you're in the autistic spectrum at 64 years of age, people don't really take it serious. It's not, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to sort of uh, be critical of, of, of people. But and at the same time, I, if I walk into the victim role, I, I, I get nowhere. I know. It's, know. it's just and, it's uh, interesting when you say some of those things. I saw a movie recently, I don't know if you've come across it, um, uh, directed by Nick Kelly, called The Drummer and the mm. Keeper. The uh, Drummer and the Keeper. And the Keeper. Mm. And the Keeper. And mm. I the Keeper. An Irish movie, and they, it's based on the relationship between a bipolar drummer and, a, and an Asperger's um, uh, kid who is uh, into soccer. It's a fantastic movie and it helps really to portray the relationship mm. because apparently Nick Kelly himself was a drummer with the group in Dublin many years back uh, and mm. stuff is bipolar and he has a son mm -hmm. with Asperger's. Um, mm. But it's a tremendous mm. movie if you get the opportunity to, to have a look. Yes. Uh, oh, it it yeah. is a tremendous movie. Um, mm -hmm. So then we all know as well that there's a tremendous crisis with uh, homelessness in Ireland and um, there's also uh, problems not just with homelessness but with um, alcoholism and drug addiction and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Can you see any light at the end of the tunnel, not for yourself, but just for, for the way things are and, and where Ireland is at today? Yeah, well, I don't want to be a prophet of doom, awesome. But I look at, there is an epidemic of drug addiction. Yeah. There's an epidemic. I think alcoholism has progressively, and I don't, you come across maybe a sexist like this, uh, but a lot of young ladies are being addicted. There's a lot of young ladies going for recovery. And the sad part about it, they've got small livers. Yeah. Um, it's it's very, very rampant in Ireland, I think. We used to call it the Irish disease, alcoholism. And, um, you know, uh, cocaine addiction is rampant. Um, but, like, some people don't look upon cocaine as, like, heroin. They think it's heroin. It's, it's a drug is a drug. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's an epidemic on both sides right. uh, of the coin in relation to cocaine and heroin. Alcoholism as that is progressing. Younger people are becoming addicted early. Uh, I think it's also behaviour can be an addiction as well. Uh, awesome. I think nearly everything is an addiction nowadays. I think the spending can be an addiction. Uh, food is a problem nowadays. Um, uh, you know, where does it end? Where is it going to stop? I, you know, as I said, I don't want to be a problem of doom. Uh, so, I, 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 you know, I don't know what answer to that really. Right. Uh, so then, awesome. Des Desi, in your own situation now is where um, Christmas is, up, is upon us. Um, mm. How do you spend Christmas now? Um, I'd be on my own Christmas Day. Okay. And, you know, that sounds bizarre. All my family are abroad. My first cousin could be living on the same block for all I know. Right. 
but the home I've made is within myself, awesome. Right. My home is within me. Right. I had a history of homelessness, and my home is within me. Right. Uh, Christmas Day, I'm on my own. Stephen's Day, a family invited me to have dinner with them on Stephen's Day. Uh, and people say, are you mad? Or what's going on? And, and I look everywhere going around with like headless chickens. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. You know, people are. If you said some, if you said somebody, you know, Happy Christmas be, before the fourth uh, of December, you need to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. You know, you know, I just, it's not, it's not a big major issue. The major, main thing is, as, as I mentioned, Alton, the home was within me, and that's where I'm at today. And I'm grateful for the roof over my head. I'm so delighted of a lovely apartment, a beautiful place, and for uh, nominal rent from the council. And I just basically grateful. I'm so grateful for, for what I have. It was hard earned. It was hard earned. I know. I just didn't I know. get it. Well, Desi, you know? Desi, we should wrap up. It's been great having a chat and I want to direct people if they want to find out more about you. And you have the mm. four books out there. Uh, it's mm. Desi, J-A-Y-M, D-E-Z-I-J-A-Y-M dot com is the website. Mm. And mm. Uh, you can also pick up uh, a link to the uh, where Desi published his books, and it's a site called themanuscriptpublisher.com. Mm-hmm. And the manuscript mm-hmm. publisher, all one word, dot com. Mm-hmm. And you can purchase Desi's books there. Um, Desi. And Amazon, Amazon as well. And uh, you're out there on Amazon as well. And you've. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. Um, Desi, it's been an honour chatting with you, and um, yeah. I, I really hope you have a. a I know you will. Have a serene and peaceful Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Austin. And you too. Um, okay. you know, I'm grateful for uh, your in- for the interview. And it's an honour. From Canada. I'm talking to a fellow Irish man. And wish all the Irish people a very, very happy and peaceful Christmas. And a prosperous New Year. <laughs>